was the night before Sheena's, and all through the jungle room. All the DJs were stirring, making their cocktails go kaboom. The LP bags were hung by the chimney with care, in the hopes that Mr. Fab soon would be there. The crew were all lit, decked out in their best threads, with a band keeping beat on those boss new drumheads. Shangri-La's got a kooky sweater and Barno's sporting a hat, while Jan Turkenberg has the dance moves down pat. When out on the turntables, Chris O. spun a platter. We all sprung to our feet and danced like mad hatters. Then in through the door with a significant flash, flew in Don Bowles with a huge LP stash. Rich in Washington added another hour to his show with a holiday double feature programmed by Don O. When, what to our Hepcat eyeballs should appear? But an overdressed Mr. Fab, with all the other DJs, never fear. On the dance floor he was so lively and quick, as we all grooved and frugged to surf songs so slick. It seemed like the tunes all had obscure fame, yet every single one of us knew them all by name. Everybody brought food, there were plenty of fixins, and when it came to drinks we were all nearly six in, to the top of the porch, and all through the halls, our DJs were always heard by one and all. Alex Kish and Julie, with Mike Rogers himself. I see Space Brother flipping through records on that shelf. Jamie Jazz and Catherine Sage, both shaking their heads at the terrible pun that I, for some reason, just said. Hysterica just got here, but they seem to fit right in. And we're laughing at the choices by DJ Kratoven. Georgie Girl is the peak of fashion and style. And Derek showed up with another record pile. John Nelson and Mark Time are both learning to twerk, while Miss May and Flannery chat in the kitchen and lurk. Sarcophagi and Daryl both like to pose, while Speedo and John P. trade DJ tips like old pros. DJ Babs and M.H. Lee both began to whistle, and you know we all got the It's All Night epistle. We heard Mr. Fab exclaim, quite loud and quite bright, this year we dance to Sheena's all day and all night. From everyone here in the Mid Valley, those stationed in the Lava Lamp Lounge itself, the production crew here at Dime Store Radio Theatre and Mid Valley Mutations, and all the volunteers at Sheena's Jungle Room, we wish you a sappy holidays and plenty of new music throughout the coming year. Now, time to get my freak on. Latest skaters. Meanwhile, I just finished putting out some fresh caroler chow to hopefully lure them away from our home and toward that gigantic trap we set for them this year. That roaming band of musical murderous maniacs have ruined this holiday with their monstrous singing too many times. Now it's personal. It's that glint in your eyes of fury mixed with revenge that I love so much this time of year. 
Happy holidays, Austin. I just whipped up a fresh batch of knob, and this one's for you. Mmm. Smooth. It's not as good as the stuff my uncle usually makes, but he's not with us anymore. I'm sorry to hear that, Mitch. I didn't know. What? Oh, no. He's fine. I meant he's not living with us anymore. He moved up to Vermont so he could continue his moonshine operation without any interference from the local government. I guess I need to find a new way of saying that. Well, I love what you've done with a lava lamp lounge. It really does look festive. I would have never imagined that you enjoyed this kind of homemaking, Mitch. You're usually less motivated than most people to do much of anything, really. Like, I'm genuinely surprised you've never done anything for me like this at any point in the past, ever. So, uh, it's actually sort of shocking. Come to bot turn over a new leaf every so often? Perhaps I have layers and nuance that you are only just getting to know? Maybe I'm a sophisticated AI with a modern sense of how to swing, but I have a kitschy and down-home sensibility that manifests itself in occasional coziness on the home front. When I'm in the mood, that is. And how much mood have you had tonight? Eleven quarts. I can't even tell you how happy I am. It's really unusual. Well, if the nog is that good, then give me a double. Now we're talking. The fire is stoked up nice and warm, and there's an apocalyptic storm outside. Always when you least expect it. Pity. But we have lots of food going around. I have a roast beast planned for the big day next Sunday for just the two of us. And both you and I have every day off between now and our next show together. <sighs> wow, a real holiday treat. There's a massive pile of presents for me under the tree, and I see a couple for you, too. So I think this is gonna be a pretty good haul. I mean, yeah. I've been so wrapped up in baking holiday cookies that I haven't had a chance to think about all of the usual stuff I worry about. And... I just get so excited watching all the little gothlings and baby bats looking forward to their annual Krampus dance that they put on every Christmas Eve. A true display of holiday cheer that I can get behind. Okay, I'm tired of waiting for you to start the program. Tell me now, what's on the agenda tonight? Wacky winters? Santa sing-alongs? Or a Christmas calliope? I'm sure you've got an appropriately milquetoast but seasonally acceptable cut-up ready to deploy at a moment's notice. Spill. Spill. I've been waiting all year. Well, I was thinking of playing some of my favorite Christmas songs. Boo. His. Boo. Get him off the stage. And then reading some scary holiday stories. Scary holiday stories? At Christmas? Have I died and gone to the game grid? Finally? Mid-Valley. No. It's just our 2022 Radio Holiday Celebration. Mutations. Or Mitch's Festival of Merriment co-hosted by Austin Rich. Excuse me? Austin's annual audio essay, with Mitch helping out enough to start getting named in the credits. Let's talk about that at your next performance review. And a good hello to everyone in the chat, which, uh... Is uh, rather lively this evening. It's uh, it's Mid Valley Mutations here uh, on Sheena's uh, Jonga Room, and uh, oh man, we have uh, such a, a, a fun show uh, ahead of us this evening. Uh, but let me uh, let me say a little hello to everyone. We've got a uh, uh, Maginos, uh, 
in the chat. Hello, uh, imagine us two two days in a row. I love it. Uh, it's always uh, fun to 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 hang out with imagine us. M H Lee and H uh, Scott sixty seven. You know it's a party when Scott sixty seven rolls up. He he likes to hang out near the punch bowl, the uh, the one where he's a. Uh, uh, pouring a little something from his flask in there, if you know what I mean. Uh, well, you know, we don't mind. Thanks thanks for showing up, Scott. It's always good. Uh, and then uh, we got a Sarcophagi. Excellent show, by the way, Sarcophagi. Thanks for setting me up uh, this week. Yeah, One of the things I miss about going into an actual studio is having the, the DJ on before and listening to their show while you're kind of prepping for your show. And, oh, man, it... it, it, it I miss that, but uh, sarcophagi really kind of uh, puts on a, a good uh, a good show, and and it makes you feel comfortable uh, in the chat too, which which is always nice. So, thank you, Aaron in Minneapolis. You are here for the ghosts. I will deliver a ghost story. I promise you that, uh, Mister Fab. We will have that party someday. I, 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 it's going to happen. Chris O, Charles W R. Oh man, the gang is all here. Let me just say, oh hello, hello, hello. Um, tonight, yeah, you know, I thought it would be kind of fun. You know, uh, Mitch over here is is always into the scary stories, and so I thought it'd be kind of fun to pull out a few of these. Um, I used to uh, host a program uh, for a little while called uh, Somewhere in Between a Radio Zine, and this was like a my attempt at a DIY uh, sort of This American Life, um, but a, a much more seasonal one, and 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 so each show was kind of like more in line with each of uh, uh, the, the time that it was broadcast. And so uh, we did a lot of Halloween stuff. We did a lot of uh, spring stuff. We did a lot of summer stuff. We did a lot of Christmas stuff. You name it. Um, and uh, this year, <laughs> I do like a good Christmas song, and we're going to be playing a few of those uh, tonight as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> lately last several years anyway i have certainly felt the need to celebrate uh christmas in more of the uk tradition Um, they seem to have a connection to the ghost story around christmas that uh kind of speaks to me uh especially as i get older um and 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 especially as i find uh, uh the nice history of old weird uh holiday ghost stories um so uh, for uh, that uh, kind of like um, radio zine show that I used to do, uh, I certainly would bust out a nice ghost story around Christmas. Um, and uh, that's what we got uh, on the show tonight. Uh, some ghost stories, a few songs. I got a couple poems. Uh, we're going to play some mini mutations, holiday style stuff from these uh, um, monthly uh, musical postcards that I mail out. Uh and yeah, uh, we're just going to have a, a, a good old time. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the more I talk, the less we rock. So let's get into a couple of these songs that uh, uh, I, I chose. Now, now, you know, I used to uh, listen to the radio rather uh, relentlessly as a, as a youth, and I would always notice when the, the, the radio would switch seasons and, and start playing songs associated with a certain time of year. Um, and, uh, you know, when I... Uh, became a, a, a young man I, I used to say that you know when I'm someday on the radio this is going to be the song that I'll use to signal that it's the holidays I'm just a robot loving fool it's uh, Mid Valley Mutations here on uh, Sheena's Jungle Room and uh, we're trying to uh, set the holidays right here 
with uh, some fun and some scary stories coming up later. Enjoy. kind of uh, hot to be wearing these scarves in here. Oh, yeah. Well, the scarves are must. You can't go caroling without a scarf. Catch your death. Man, you were like one of those kids I remember in uh, high school that used to sell the most candy bars for the marching band. You yeah, know? and you yeah. president of the swing yeah, choir, too. Definitely. Uh, thanks, Joe Robinson. Thanks, Tom Servo. <laughs> what a kiss up this guy. Uh, okay, now, if you'll all look at your sheet music, uh, we can rehearse my new song. You wrote a Christmas song? Hey, there's no tradition like a new tradition. <laughs> Wait a minute, let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas? Uh, yeah, yeah, based on my favorite movie, Roadhouse. Come on, what the heck does Patrick Swayze have to do with Christmas? Hey, you keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it in mine, okay? Oh, uh, come on, sir, it seems like a nice enough sentiment. We can give it a shot, come on. All right, okay, okay. Uh, 12 eight time, uh, uh -huh. key of A flat major. Oh, uh, Cambot, shoot him the tune. Uh, okay, you'll just have to stay with me, everybody, okay? Uh, your part's written out. Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas. By Crow T Robot. <clears throat> Paul, let's have a Patrick Swayze, Swayze Christmas. Right. <clears throat> Hit it, Cambot. Oh, oh, I start. I yeah. get it. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Okay, pick it up. Bye. <clears throat> Open up your heart and let the Patrick Swayze Christmas in. We'll gather at the roadhouse with our next of kin. And Santa can be our regular Saturday night thing. We'll decorate a bar stool and gather round and sing. Let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas this year. Or we'll tear your throat out and kick oh. you in the ear. Hold it, hold it a Cambot, stop it. Uh, Crow, I don't know if I think this is an appropriate sentiment anymore for Christmas. Hey, what, like a good action sequence don't belong at Christmas? Well, no, it's just that I've never heard of an action sequence in A Christmas Carol before. Yeah. Well, then grab hold of your socks and read on, Joe Robinson. Okay, okay. pick it up from measure 20, Camba. <clears throat> Lovely intro, though. Very tasteful. Thank you. I like that. It's my way or the highway this Christmas at my bar. I'll have to smash your kneecaps if you bastards touch my car. I got the word that Santa has been stealing from the till. I think that that right jolly old elf better make out his will. Oh, let's have a Patrick Swayze Christmas one and all. And this can be the haziest. can be the laziest <laughs> This can be the swayziest Christmas of them How long before it becomes a standard? I think you gotta come with me, come on. <laughs> we'll be right back. Save a leg for me. <laughs> Christmas Trees by Robert Frost A Christmas Circular Letter 
The city had withdrawn into itself and left at last the country to the country. When between whirls of snow not come to lie and whirls of foliage not yet laid, there drove a stranger to our yard who looked the city yet did in country fashion in that there he sat and waited till he drew us out a buttoning coats to ask him who he was. He proved to be the city come again to look for something it had left behind and could not do without and keep its Christmas. He asked if I would sell my Christmas trees, my woods, the young fir balsams like a place where houses all our churches and have spires. I hadn't thought of them as Christmas trees. I doubt if I was tempted for a moment to sell them off their feet to go in cars and leave the slope behind the house all bare, where the sun shines now no warmer than the moon. I'd hate to have them know it if I was. Yet more I'd hate to hold my trees except as others hold theirs or refuse for them. Beyond the time of profitable growth, the trial by market everything must come to, I dallied so much with the thought of selling. Then, whether from mistaken courtesy and fear of seeming short of speech, or whether from hope of hearing good of what was mine, I said, there ain't enough to be worthwhile. I could soon tell how many they would cut. You let me look them over. You could look, but don't expect I'm going to let you have them. Pasture they spring in, some in clumps too close that lop each other of boughs, and not a few quite solitary and having equal boughs, all round and round. The latter he nodded yes to, or paused to say beneath some lovelier one, with a buyer's moderation, that would do. I thought so too, but wasn't there to say so? We climbed the pasture on the south, crossed over, and came down on the north. He said, a thousand. A thousand Christmas trees? At what a piece? He felt some need of softening that to me. A thousand trees would come to thirty dollars. Then I was certain I had never meant to let him have them. Never show surprise. But thirty dollars seemed so small beside the extent of pasture I should strip. Three cents, for that was all they figured out a piece. Three cents so small beside the dollar, friends, I should be writing to within the hour, would pay in cities for good trees like those. Regular vestry trees, whole Sunday schools could hang together on to pick off enough. A thousand Christmas trees I didn't know I had, worth three cents more to give away than sell, as may be shown by a simple calculation. Too bad I couldn't lay one in a letter. I can't help wishing I could send you one, and wishing you, herewith, a Merry Christmas. That was to have been our last act. Normally, we wouldn't allow any last-minute entries, but these kids have come a long way, all the way from Riverbottom. 
Yes, these river bottom Come on, let's clear it away now, huh? Come on, clear it out. What they've done is put together a genuine So let's welcome these tonight's last contestants. Here they are, the rock group known as the Nightmare. in the glow of the holiday lighting and decorations, we can sometimes get lost in the moment as memories of the past, present, and future flash before us, like a Dickensian tale repackaged for the audio age. While we cannot promise that you are visited by three ghosts, instead, let these sounds lull you into a holiday trance that is just as eye-opening and will make you want to revisit it again and again. Valley. It's our 2022 radio holiday celebration. Mutations. Just when you thought it was safe to celebrate the holidays.
we're just kind of getting settled in. Playing a little music and uh, enjoying some poetry. Something I don't actually do enough of on this show. I, I, I talked about this with uh, uh, my friend Obadiah. Um, it, it, it's funny, uh, radio is this uh, singular medium that does uh, very well when you just talk directly to people uh, and, and, and reading things and whatnot works incredibly well in this uh, medium. Uh, and, and I don't take advantage of that nearly enough. Um, so, uh, 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 so it's, yeah, we're going to have some more uh, literary pieces coming uh, throughout the evening. But I, I have to give a little shout-out uh, to my good uh, buddy, Emmett Otter. Every year, I do enjoy watching that program. Uh, it's a bit of a holiday tradition, uh, as it were. And so uh, uh, I often say it's not Christmas until I hear the Riverbottom Nightmare Band. Doing almost a better Alice Cooper than Alice Cooper, uh, in, a, in in some ways. <laughs> I mean, I think that was the reference point in, in 1977. Um, <clears throat> certainly, uh, Alice Cooper probably should have said to himself, "Hmm, I better step up my game," and, and he did. So uh, I think it all worked out for the best. You know, so I am uh, continuing to go down the uh, um, holiday memory lane, as it were. Now, when you're a young person uh, uh, and, and you listen to a lot of radio, uh, you do notice uh, uh, trends and whatnot. And there was one station that uh, I grew up with uh, and my mom actually turned me on to because uh, it played a lot of music she liked. Uh, and so, of course, uh, when, you, when you're young, you often uh, incorporate the, the music of your family into a uh, uh, your identity in a lot of ways. And, and um, uh, that, that is a long way of saying that uh, uh, on this radio station, uh, it's uh, it was uh, out of um, Eugene, Oregon, KZL, um, which still broadcasts, but uh, uh, it has kind of more switched over to a grunge format to kind of fit with uh, what uh, a middle-aged uh, person would want to listen to on the radio these days. But anyway, uh, uh, when I was a young lad and I would listen to that station with my family, around the holidays, you could always tell that KZL had switched to uh, um, the holiday format because they would start playing the song coming up. Good night, sarcophagi. Sleep well. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this uh, holiday journey. But uh, it's time to visit a place that I like to call the Great White North. It's Mid-Valley Mutations here in Sheena's Jungle Room. And uh, enjoy. Okay, good day. This is our Christmas part of the album, and you can play this at your Christmas parties uh, or to yourself on Christmas Eve if there's nothing else to do. Good day, eh? Yeah. In case you thought, like, I wasn't on this part. Oh, I guarantee you, you'd be on. Okay, so good day. This is the Christmas part, 
and we're going to tell you what to get uh, your true love for Christmas. Look out the window. Where? What are you doing? Snow. What? Oh, it's a great white north, and it's snowing because it's Christmas time. Hey, Hoser. What? Here's a quiz. Quiz for Duck. Okay, I have my thinking toque on. Yeah, right. What are the 12 days of Christmas? Just um, figure it out, right? Christmas is when? Uh, the 25th. Right, and what's the 24th? Christmas Eve, right? So that's, that's two. two. And then what's after that? Uh, Boxing uh, wrestling day. day. No, get Boxing out. Boxing day, yeah, yeah. That's three. I know. Then what's after that? Nothing. New Year's. Four. And what's New Year's Eve? Five. Okay. Where do you get 12? Uh, there's two Saturdays and Sundays in there. That's four. That's nine. And three other days, which I believe are the mystery days. Oh. Okay, now, this is our Christmas song. In case you don't know what to get somebody for Christmas. There's lots of ideas in here, so listen and don't get stuck. Okay. By the way, that's me on the organ. Oh, jeez. You start. Okay. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a beer. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtlenecks and a beer. Okay, good. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French toast, two turtlenecks and a beer. Okay, there should be more there, eh? Well, on the fourth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me Four pounds of back bacon. Three French toast. Two turtlenecks. And a beer in a tree. Oh, yeah. More. A fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me five golden toques. Four pounds of back bacon. Three French toast. Two turtlenecks. And a beer in a tree. Okay, on the sixth. Two golden Christmas, my true love gave to me six packs of two for five golden toques. Four pounds of back bacon, three French toast, two turtlenecks, and a beer in a tree. Okay, okay. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me seven packs of smoke. Six packs of two five golden toots. Four pounds of back bacon, three French toast, two turtlenecks, and a beer in a tree. This should just be the two days of Christmas. It's too hard for us. Um, go home. Oh, eight day of Christmas, Drula gave to me eight comic books, seven packs of smoke, six packs of two for five. And a beer. Yeah, that beer is empty. Okay, day uh, 12. Good day, and welcome to day 12. Yeah. Golden Toots. Four pounds of bagging, three French toast, two turtlenecks, and a beer in a dream. Where did you learn to do that? Uh, albums? So, like, that's our song. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and good day. Good day, everybody. Happy, happy New Year. On the twelfth day, you could have so got me a dozen donuts. Go on to the you store. You could have gone down and get some to, presents, like that. Uh,
good donut shop where if you buy a dozen, you get another one free. And that has been 13 for the 13 days of Christmas. Next Christmas, get me a chainsaw. That's on is a beauty. Move. Yeah, I think it ranks up there with Stairway to Heaven. What? Oh, is this your snowbank? No. Who are you? Well, actually, I am a dentist. A dentist? Well, I want to be someday. Right now, I'm just an elf. But I don't need anybody. I'm... I'm independent. Yeah? Me too. I'm... whatever you said. Independent. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? You wouldn't mind my... red nose? Not if you don't mind me being a dentist. It's a deal. We're a couple of misfits, we're a couple of misfits What's the matter with misfits, that's where we fit in We're not Gaffy and Gilly, don't go round willy-nilly Seems to us kind of silly that we don't fit in We may be different from the rest who decides the test of what is really best? We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. Why am I such a misfit? I am not just a nitpick. I'm a deer of a reindeer. Why don't I fit in? Why am I such a misfit? I am not just a nitwit. They can't fire me, I quit. Seems I don't fit in. We may be different from the rest. Who decides the test of what is really best? We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. The Ghost's Summons by Ada Busson Written in 1868 Wanted, sir, a patient. It was the early days of my professional career, when patients were scarce and fees scarcer, and though I was in the act of sitting down to my chop, and had promised myself a glass of steaming punch afterwards, in honor of the Christmas season, I hurried instantly into my surgery. I entered briskly, but no sooner did I catch sight of the figure standing leaning against the counter than I stared back with a strange feeling of horror, which, for the life of me, I could not comprehend. Never shall I forget the ghastliness of that face, the white horror stamped upon every feature, the agony which seemed to sink the very eyes beneath the contracted brows, it was awful to me to behold, accustomed as I was to scenes of terror. You seek advice, I began, with some hesitation. No, I am not ill. You require then... Hush, he interrupted, approaching more nearly and dropping his already low murmur to a mere whisper. I believe you are not rich. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? 
His words seemed to burn my very ears. I should be thankful if I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service required of me? A peculiar look of intense horror passed over the white face before me, but the blue-black lips answered firmly. To attend a deathbed. A thousand pounds to attend a deathbed? Where am I to go then? Whose is it? Mine. The voice in which this was said sounded so hollow and distant that, involuntarily, I shrank back. Yours? What nonsense! You are not a dying man. You are pale, but you appear perfectly healthy. You— Hush, he interrupted. I know all this. You cannot be more convinced of my physical health than I am myself. Yet, I know that before the clock tolls the first hour after midnight, I shall be a dead man. But, he shuddered slightly. But, stretching out his hand commandingly, he motioned me to be silent. I am but too well informed of what I affirm, he said quietly. I have received a mysterious summons from the dead. No mortal aid can avail me. I am as doomed as the wretch on whom the judge has passed sentence. I do not come either to seek your advice or to argue the matter with you, but simply to buy your services. I offer you a thousand pounds to pass the night in my chamber and witness the scene which takes place. The sum may appear to you extravagant, but I have no further need to court the cost of any gratification, and the spectacle you will have to witness is no common sight of horror. The words, strange as they were, were spoken calmly enough, but as the last sentence dropped slowly from the livid lips, an expression of such wild horror again passed over the stranger's face, that, in spite of the immense fee, I hesitated to answer. You fear to trust to the promise of a dead man? See here and be convinced, he exclaimed eagerly, and the next instant, on the counter between us, lay a parchment document, and, following the indication of that white muscular hand, I read the words, And to Mr. Frederick Keed of 14 High Street, Alton, I bequeath the sum of one thousand pounds for certain services rendered to me. I have had that will drawn up within the last twenty-four hours, and I signed it an hour ago, in the presence of competent witnesses. I am prepared, you see. Now, do you accept my offer, or not? My answer was to walk across the room and take down my hat, and then lock the door of the surgery communicating with the house. It was a dark, icy cold night, and somehow the courage and determination which the sight of my own name in connection with the thousand pounds had given me flagged considerably as I found myself hurried along through the silent darkness by a man whose deathbed I was about to attend. He was grimly silent, but as his hand touched mine, in spite of the frost, it felt like a burning coal. On we went, tramp, tramp, through the snow, on, on, till even I grew weary, and at length, on my appalled ear, struck the chimes of a church clock, whilst close at hand I distinguished the snowy hillocks of a churchyard. Heavens, was this awful scene of which I was to be the witness to take place veritably among the dead? 11. 
groaned the doomed man. Gracious God, but two hours more, and that ghostly messenger will bring the summons. Come, come, for mercy's sake, let us hasten. There was but a short road separating us now from a wall which surrounded a large mansion, and along this we hastened until we reached a small door. Passing through this, in a few minutes, we were stealthily ascending the private staircase to a splendidly furnished apartment, which left no doubt of the wealth of its owner. All was intensely silent, however, through the house, and about this room in particular there was a stillness that, as I gazed around, struck me as almost ghastly. My companion glanced at the clock on the mantel shelf and sank into a large chair by the side of the fire with a shudder. Only an hour and a half longer, he muttered. Great heaven, I thought I'd have more fortitude. This horror unmans me. Then, in a fiercer tone, and clutching my arm, he added, Ha! You mock me! You think me mad! But wait till you see... Wait till you see! I put my hand on his wrist, for there was now a fever in his sunken eyes, which checked the superstitious chill which had been gathering over me, and made me hope that, after all, my first suspicion was correct, and that my patient was but the victim of some fearful hallucination. "'Mock you,' I answered soothingly, "'far from it. I sympathize intensely with you, and would do much to aid you. You require sleep. Lie down, and leave me to watch.' He groaned, but rose, and began throwing off his clothes. And, watching my opportunity, I slipped a sleeping powder, which I had managed to put in my pocket before leaving the surgery, into the tumbler of claret which stood beside him. The more I saw, the more I felt convinced that it was the nervous system of my patient which required my attention, and it was with sincere satisfaction I saw him drink the wine and then stretch himself on the luxurious bed. Ha! I thought, as the clock struck twelve, and instead of a groan, the deep breathing of the sleeper sounded through the room. You won't receive any summons tonight, and I may make myself comfortable. Noiselessly, therefore, I replenished the fire, pouring myself out a large glass of wine, and drawing the curtain so that the firelight should not disturb the sleeper. I put myself in a position to follow his example. How long I slept, I know not, but suddenly I aroused with a start, and as ghostly a thrill of horror as ever I remember to have felt in my life. Something, what, I knew not, seemed near, something nameless, but unutterably awful. I gazed round. The fire emitted a faint blue glow, just sufficient to enable me to see that the room was exactly the same as when I fell asleep, but that the long hand of the clock wanted but five minutes of the mysterious hour which was to be the death moment of the summoned man. Was there anything in it, then? Any truth in the strange story he had told? The silence was intense. I could not even hear a breath from the bed, and I was about to rise and approach, when again that awful horror seized me, and at the same moment my eye fell upon the mirror opposite the door, and I saw, great heaven, that awful shape, that ghastly mockery of what had been humanity, 
Was it really a messenger from the buried, quiet dead? It stood there, invisible death clothes, but the awful face was ghastly with corruption, and the sunken eyes gleamed forth a green, glassy glare that seemed a veritable blast from the infernal fires below. To move or utter a sound in that hideous presence was impossible, and, like a statue, I sat and saw that horrid shape move slowly towards the bed. What was the awful scene enacted there, I know not. I heard nothing, except a low, stifled, agonized groan, and I saw the shadow of that ghastly messenger bending over the bed. Whether it was some dreadful but wordless sentence its breathless lips conveyed as it stood there, I know not. But, for an instant, the shadow of the claw-like hand from which the third finger was missing appeared extended over the doomed man's forehead. And then, as the clock struck one clear silvery stroke, it fell, and a wild shriek rang through the room. A death shriek. I am not given to fainting, but I certainly confess that the next ten minutes of my existence was a cold blank, and even when I did manage to stagger to my feet, I gazed round vainly endeavoring to understand the chilly horror which still possessed me. Thank God the room was rid of that awful presence. I saw that. So, gulping down some wine, I lighted a wax taper and staggered toward the bed. Ah, how I prayed that, after all, I might have been dreaming, and that my own excited imagination had but conjured up some hideous memory of the dissecting room. But one glance was sufficient to answer that. No! The summons had indeed been given and answered. I flashed the light over the dead face, swollen, convulsed still with the death agony, but suddenly I shrank back. Even as I gazed, the expression of the face seemed to change. The blackness faded into the deathly whiteness. The convulsed features relaxed. Even as if the victim of that dead apparition still lived, a sad, solemn smile stole over the pale lips. I was intensely horrified, but still I retained sufficient self-consciousness to be struck professionally by such a phenomenon. Surely there was something more than supernatural agency in all this. Again, I scrutinized the dead face, and even the throat and chest, but, with the exception of a tiny pimple on one temple, beneath a cluster of hair, not a mark appeared. To look at the corpse, one would have believed that this man had indeed died by the visitation of God, peacefully, while sleeping. How long I stood there I know not, but time enough to gather my scattered senses and reflect that, all things considered, my own position would be very unpleasant if I was found thus unexpectedly in the room of the mysteriously dead man. So, as noiselessly as I could, I made my way out of the house. No one met me on the private staircase. The little door opening into the road was easily unfastened, and thankful indeed was I to feel again the fresh winter air as I hurried along the road by the churchyard. There was a magnificent funeral soon in that church, and it was said that the young widow of the buried man was inconsolable. And then, rumors got abroad of a horrible apparition which had been seen on the night of the death. And it was whispered that the young widow was terrified, and insisted upon leaving her splendid mansion. 
I was too mystified with the whole affair to risk my reputation by saying what I knew, and I should have allowed my share in it to remain forever buried in oblivion, had I not suddenly heard that the widow, objecting to many of the legacies in the last will of her husband, intended to dispute it on the score of insanity, and then there gradually arose the rumor of his belief in having received a mysterious summons. On this I went to the lawyer, and sent a message to the lady that, as the last person who had attended her husband, I undertook to prove his sanity, and I besought her to grant me an interview, in which I would relate as strange and horrible a story as ear had ever heard. The same evening I received an invitation to go to the mansion. I was ushered immediately into a splendid room, and there, standing before the fire, was the most dazzlingly beautiful young creature I had ever seen. She was very small, but exquisitely made. Had it not been for the dignity of her courage, I should have believed her a mere child. With a stately bow she advanced, but did not speak. I came on a strange and painful errand, I began, and then I started, for I happened to glance full into her eyes, and from them down to the small right hand grasping the chair. The wedding ring was on that hand. I conclude you are Mr. Keed, who requested permission to tell me some absurd ghost story, and whom my late husband mentions here. And as she spoke, she stretched out her left hand towards something. But what? I knew not, for my eyes were fixed on that hand. Horror, white and delicate it might be, but it was shaped like a claw, and the third finger was missing. One sentence was enough after that. Madam, all I can tell you is that the ghost who summoned your husband was marked by a singular deformity. The third finger on the left hand was missing, I said sternly, and the next instant I had left that beautiful sinful presence. That will was never disputed. The next morning, too, I received a check for a thousand pounds, and the next news I heard of the widow was that she had herself seen the awful apparition and had left the mansion immediately. Faith has long since been the backbone of this time of year as those who most need a boost to make it through this dark period find solace in something larger than themselves. Still others find that faith is not necessary when their favorite holiday tunes are presented on a simple pipe organ. Mid Valley. It's our 2022 radio holiday celebration. Mutations. He sees you when you're sleeping, and he's still in the room when you're awake. Don't let him hear you. And you're listening to Mid-Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Where both M.H. Lee and I are in agreement. The tiny pimple is a uh, very weird detail. Thank you for joining me on this uh, excursion into some ghost stories. Uh, we had to listen to some music to kind of set us up uh, during the first part of the show. Uh, but uh, 
we are solidly into the ghost story portion of the evening. We heard a little uh, section there from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, holiday special from 1964. I, I just learned the other day that the very first animated television holiday special aired in 1962, only two years before that. And it was the uh, uh, Mr. Magoo uh, holiday uh, special. I think it's a, a reinterpretation of... Um, uh, a Christmas Carol, but with uh, Mr. Magoo in the lead. And that was the very first animated holiday TV special. And of course, it was done by Rankin Bass. And I think MH Lee uh, informed me earlier in the chat that uh, um, uh, Mr. Bass passed away uh, this year. An interesting coincidence I did not realize, but I, uh, I certainly. Uh, do have a little bit of an affinity for that uh, couple of misfits song from that uh, from that movie. Certainly, this is a little bit of uh, a, a, a trip through uh, my uh, uh, holiday uh, uh, inclinations. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I'm playing selections from my uh, 2021 uh, holiday postcard. Uh, I, I have these uh, monthly postcards, musical postcards that I send out uh, for people who are on the mailing list. Uh, I think Imaginos is actually on that mailing list. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just these QR code activated uh, uh, musical um, uh, sort of situations. Uh, and uh, yeah, I put one out every month. And, and, and then of course around Christmas and then around uh, Halloween, I try to make the postcards for those months kind of holiday themed but yeah if this sounds like something you're interested in uh, the postcards are a little different every month sometimes they're weird sometimes they're uh, like rock songs sometimes they're uh, spoken word it just uh, whatever sort of fits sometimes you get to hear me play organ which I like to do Ooh, thanks for the tip, Mr. Fab. Ada Busson uh, is also part of the 27 Club. Uh, very interesting. Hmm. Make of that what you will. I no longer do this show, but uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, the Radio Zine program because it allowed me to just kind of like read a bunch of stuff and kind of uh, uh, speak extemporaneously off the dome about uh, whatever time of year we were in. And uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a fun program. Uh, also allowed me to do some research, uh, which was kind of fun because I would always go like, oh, when's this airing? What will people be thinking about that day? Yeah, that kind of thing. You know, Aaron, I was almost going to go there. And then I, I thought, you know, I don't want to make that joke. But uh, uh, clearly I should have. So uh, what do I know? Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, talking too much in this in-between section here. Let's get back to uh, the show itself. It's uh, Mid-Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room. And, and, and for the holiday, we're telling some scary stories. They're kind of fitting for uh, this time of year. 
And uh, what I like about this next one is that it, you actually kind of get to learn a little bit about a game that uh, kids used to play in the kind of um, 19th century way that Christmas was celebrated. Um, although uh, the more I think about the way this game is played, uh, this must be at some sort of holiday gathering in a massive house with a lot of kids. Uh, which indicates that there was probably some wealth involved as well. But uh, let's not do any of the uh, class deconstructions. Let's just get to the ghost story. It's uh, Mid-Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Enjoy. Smee by A.M. Barrage. No, said Jackson with a shy little smile. I'm sorry, I won't play hide-and-seek. It was Christmas Eve, and there were 14 of us in the house. We had had a good dinner, and we were all in the mood for fun and games. All, that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there were loud shouts of agreement. Jackson's refusal was the only one. It was not like Jackson to refuse to play a game. Aren't you feeling well? someone asked. I'm perfectly all right, thank you, he said. But, he added with a smile that softened his refusal, but did not change it, I'm still not playing hide-and-seek. Why not? someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to a servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped, and landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Miss Fenley said, How horrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said. But I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment. Then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide-and-seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide-and-seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written, Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself, or herself. You turn out the lights, and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee, but of course they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee! The other player answers, Smee! And they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? 
Yes, he answered. I played it in the house I was telling you about. And she was there, the girl who broke... No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us playing the game, and there were only 12 people in the house. And I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me. But I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. Tim Vouch was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at us all. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson, you can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson. And here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas. Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall, dark-haired, handsome girl whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at the table. I was sitting next to Miss Gorman, and as usual, Miss Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their seventeen-year-old son, Reggie, was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all, If you are going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago before we came here. There was a party and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Miss Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went around, making sure all the lights were off, except the ones in the servants' rooms, 
and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper. 11 of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them up, then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? Smee! After a while, the noise had died down, and I guessed that somebody had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer, so Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, looked up the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another one and began to count. He got as far as twelve, and he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave better light than the matches. We all began to count. Of course, there were twelve of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted thirteen twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violent Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Miss Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened, and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and each other, and we felt normal again. There were only twelve of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were twelve people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to the bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter? I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course. I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered, and there was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange, cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch, and there was nobody there. Now I am sure I touched a hand, and nobody could get out of the cupboard, 
because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together, we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everybody was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All of the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me, Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in this house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we all started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first, I stayed with the others. But for several minutes, no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then, I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in the corner of one of the window seats, behind a curtain. Aha, I thought. I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to the side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner window seat. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he, or she, does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came. Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions of her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was no one else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she is using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her 
and wanted to know more about her, but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. I remembered touching her arm, and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side, and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee, whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Miss Gorman. Of course she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony. We'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player, somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Miss Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Miss Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello, hello, anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Miss Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean. I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Miss Gorman. The curtain was pulled back, and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Miss Gorman, and then on my other side, between me and the wall, was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once. Then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick, and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Miss Gorman in a trembling voice, and I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Somebody's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Some time later, Jack Sangstrom wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and soon he told me the reason. Tony, he said, I suppose you are in love with Miss Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house, during a game. You kept everybody waiting. It was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there, someone who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Singstrom stared at me. 
Miss who? He breathed. Brenda Ford was what she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. While the origins of the holiday season are no mystery, it can seem that the modern version is celebrated in ways that may not reflect the kind of celebration that is most meaningful to you. Listen carefully as our performers conjure forth the tools necessary to offer you the warmest season's greetings possible. Mid Valley. It's our 2022 radio holiday celebration. Mutations. Where only the weight gain and your alcohol consumption are the truly scary things about this time of year. Well, we have uh, reached the back 40 of our program, and uh, several people are kind of leafing off to uh, find a place to s- sleep for the evening. Uh, Good night, Imaginos. I think Mr. Fab had to go get some pizza. I understand. I think Chris O also had to drift off, so uh, we're, we're starting to reach that point in the evening where things are getting a little weird. Oh, yeah. I imagine your neck would be hurting, Smee. We've got a, a couple more stories uh, left for you, and then a, a couple more tunes for you as well. Uh, so uh, we'll see if we can rein this in and, and, and keep it to a, a, a nice, uh, reasonable uh, length this evening. But you never can be too sure this time of year. Sometimes uh, it takes a little while. Nice to see you, Suffer Words. Thanks for joining us. Okay, let's uh, let's get into this next one. Now, you, you may know this gentleman's uh, work, uh, but you may not know him as a uh, ghost story uh, uh, enthusiast, uh, as it were. So, uh, um, you know... I think uh, um, you'll you'll quickly understand what, how uh, this is a little bit unusual for him, and then of course also entirely typical for him too. It's a uh, mid valley mutations, and uh, I think it's time that we get into the Twain here on Sheena's Jungle. A Ghost Story by Mark Twain I took a large room, far up Broadway, in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years until I came. The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs, to solitude and silence. I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead. That first night I climbed up to my quarters... For the first time in my life, a superstitious dread came over me, and as I turned a dark angle of the stairway 
and an invisible cobweb swung its hazy woof in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom. I was glad enough when I reached my room and locked out the mold in the darkness. A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief. For two hours I sat there, thinking of bygone times, recalling old scenes, and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past, listening, in fancy, to voices that long ago grew silent for all time, and to once familiar songs that nobody sings now. And as my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos, the shrieking of the winds outside softened to a wail. The angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a tranquil patter, and one by one the noises in the street subsided, until the hurrying footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance and left no sound behind. The fire had burned low. A sense of loneliness crept over me. I arose and undressed, moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do, as if I were environed by sleeping enemies whose slumbers it would be fatal to break. I covered up in bed and lay listening to the rain and the wind and the faint creaking of distant shutters till they lulled me to sleep. I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know. All at once I found myself awake and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still. All but my own heart. I could hear it beat. Presently the bedclothes began to slip away slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still the blankets slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered. Then, with a great effort, I seized them and drew them over my head. I waited, listened, waited. Once more that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid, a century of dragging seconds, till my breast was naked again. At last I roused my energies and snatched the covers back to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. By and by I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strengthened to a steady strain. It grew stronger and stronger. My hold parted, and for the third time the blankets slid away. I groaned. An answering groan came from the foot of the bed. Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently, I heard a heavy footstep in my room. The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything human. But it was moving from me. There was relief in that. I heard it approach the door, pass out without moving bolt or lock, and wander away among the dismal corridors, straining the floors and joists till they creaked again as it paused, and then silence reigned once more. When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself, this is a dream, simply a hideous dream. And so I lay thinking it was over until I convinced myself that it was a dream. And then a comforting laugh relaxed my lips and I was happy again. 
I got up and struck a light, and when I found that the locks and the bolts were just as I had left them, another soothing laugh welled in my heart and rippled from my lips. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire when, down went the pipe, out of my nerveless fingers. The blood forsook my cheeks, and my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp. In the ashes on the hearth, side by side with my own bare footprint, was another so vast that in comparison mine was but an infant's. Then I had had a visitor, and the elephant tread was explained. I put out the light and returned to bed, palsied with fear. I lay a long time, peering into the darkness and listening. Then I heard a grating noise overhead, like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor. Then the throwing down of the body, and the shaking of my windows in response to the concussion. In distant parts of the building I heard the muffled slamming of doors. I heard, at intervals, stealthy footsteps creeping in and out among the corridors, and up and down the stairs. Sometimes these noises approached my door, hesitated, and went away again. I heard the clanking of chains faintly in remote passages, and listened while the clanking grew nearer, while it wearily climbed the stairways, marking each move by the loose surplus of chains that fell with an accented rattle upon each succeeding step as the goblin that bore it advanced. I heard muttered sentences, half-uttered screams that seemed smothered violently, and the swish of invisible garments, the rush of invisible wings. Then I became conscious that my chamber was invaded, that I was not alone. I heard sighs and breathings about my bed and mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of soft, phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling, directly over my head, clung and glowed there a moment, and then dropped. Two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They spattered, liquidly, and felt warm. Intuition told me that they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell. I needed no light to satisfy myself of that. Then I saw pallid faces, dimly luminous and white, uplifted hands, floating bodiless in the air, floating a moment and then disappearing. The whispering ceased, and the voices and the sounds and the solemn stillness followed. I waited and listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. I slowly raised myself toward a sitting posture, and my face came in contact with a clammy hand. All strength went from me, apparently, and I fell back like a stricken invalid. Then I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and feeble, and lit the gas with a hand that trembled as if it were aged with a hundred years. The light brought some little cheer to my spirits. I sat down and fell into a dreamy contemplation of that great footprint in the ashes. By and by, its outlines began to waver and grow dim. I glanced up and the broad gas flame was slowly wilting away. In the same moment, I heard that elephantine tread again. I noted its approach nearer and nearer, along the musty halls and dimmer 
and dimmer the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused. The light had dwindled to a sickly blue, and all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge, cloudy presence before me. I watched it with fascinated eyes. A pale glow stole over the thing. Gradually, its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and last, a great sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its filmy housings, naked, muscular, and comely, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me. All my misery vanished, for a child might know that no harm could come with that benign countenance. My cheerful spirits returned at once, and in sympathy with them, the gas flamed up brightly again. Never a lonely outcast was so glad to welcome company as I to greet the friendly giant. I said, Why, is it nobody but you? Do you know I have been scared to death for the last two or three hours? I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try to sit down in that thing. But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him, and down he went. I never saw a chair shivered so in my life. Stop, stop, you'll ruin ever... Too late again. There was another crash, and another chair was resolved into its original elements. Confound it, haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to ruin all the furniture in the place? Here, here, you petrified fool! But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed, and it was a melancholy ruin. Now what sort of way is that to do? First you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you to worry me to death. And then when I overlook an indelicacy of costume, which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people except in a respectable theater, and not even there if the nudity were of your sex, you repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on. And why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You have broken off the end of your spinal column and littered up the floor with chips of your hams till the place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well, I will not break any more furniture, but what am I to do? I have not had a chance to sit down for a century, and the tears came into his eyes. Poor devil, I said. I should not have been so harsh with you. And you are an orphan too, no doubt. But sit down on the floor, here. Nothing else can stand your weight. And besides, we cannot be sociable with you away up there above me. I want you down where I can perch on this high counting house stool and gossip with you face to face. And so he sat down on the floor and lit a pipe, which I gave him, threw one of my red blankets over his shoulders, inverted my sitz bath on his head, helmet fashion, and made himself picturesque and comfortable. Then he crossed his ankles while I renewed the fire and exposed the flat, honeycombed bottoms of his prodigious feet to the grateful warmth. Infernal chiblains! I caught them clear up to the back of my head, roosting out there under Newall's farm. 
but I love the place. I love it as one loves his old home. There is no peace for me like the peace I feel when I am there. We talked along for a half an hour, and then I noticed that he looked tired and spoke of it. Tired? he said. Well, I shouldn't think so. And now I will tell you all about it, since you have treated me so well. I am the spirit of petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I am the ghost of the Cardiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they have given that poor body burial again. Now what was the most natural thing for me to do, to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it. Haunt the place where the body lay. So I haunted the museum night after night. I even got other spirits to help me. But it did no good, for nobody ever came to the museum at midnight. Then it occurred to me to come over the way and haunt this place a little. I felt that if I ever got a hearing, I must succeed, for I had the most efficient company that perdition could furnish. Night after night we have shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging chains, groaning, whispering, tramping up and down stairs, till, to tell you the truth, I am almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight, I roused my energies again and went at it with a deal of old freshness. But I am tired out, entirely fagged out. Give me, I beseech you, give me some hope. I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed, This transcends everything, everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor blundering old fossil, you have had your trouble for nothing. You've been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff giant is in Albany. Confound it, don't you know your own remains? Footnote. A fact. The original was ingeniously and fraudulently duplicated and exhibited in New York as the only genuine Cardiff giant, to the unspeakable disgust of the owners of the real Colossus, at the very same time that the real giant was drawing crowds at a museum in Albany. I never saw such an eloquent look of shame, of pitiable humiliation, overspread a countenance before. The petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly, is that true? As true as I'm sitting here. He took the pipe from his mouth and laid it on the mantel, then stood irresolute a moment, unconsciously, from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloon's pockets should have been, and meditatively dropping his chin on his breast, and finally said, Well... I never felt so absurd before. The petrified man has sold everybody else, and now the mean fraud has ended by selling its own ghost. My son, if there is any charity left in your heart for a poor, friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself. I heard his stately tramp die away, step by step, down the stairs and out into the deserted street, and felt sorry that he was gone, poor fellow, and sorrier still that he had carried off my red blanket and bathtub.
It seemed like a good idea at the time. With all honesty, it's because we never took the thought experiment to the most logical extreme, which was our first mistake. When you haven't properly thought through your ideas, there's no telling where they could wind up. Certainly, not thinking ahead was at the root of this problem. But even before that, there were the gingerbread people who moved into our town. That really began to change things in the long run. Like with so many things in life, at first, there was only one. We would see this lone gingerbread person walking down the street, and it was hard not to be concerned, because they were a person. But it was hard not to stare, because they were also made of gingerbread. The birds would swoop in and try to peck at them, and generally, they were very, very delicate. You had to be careful shaking their hand, or it might break off in yours. Harold, as they liked to be called, seemed like they would be a nice addition to the town to give us a little diversity and something to talk about. But it wasn't long before there were two gingerbread people, and then four. Someone had let the word out, and our tiny burg of Havenston soon housed the largest gingerbread person population in the country. At the next town meeting, we addressed the growing concern that soon you would only find these baked people overrunning everything if we didn't take some sort of action. We thought we were being helpful in a way. So when a new project of all gingerbread houses began to go up, we thought this was an easy fix. The gingerbread people would move into the houses that were actually made for them and then we could all stay in our respective neighborhoods, not bothering one another. Right? Apparently, they didn't see it that way. They kept saying that they wanted to make their own decisions, live where they wanted to live, and there was no reason a flesh-blood person should be able to tell a gingerbread person what to do. It seemed like the next thing to do was to pass some zoning laws to keep the gingerbread people in their places. But this only worked for a few decades. Eventually, the gingerbread people started to see past all the lame incentives and small cultural inroads that we were allowing them, and started to riot and protest against us, saying our very world was designed and stacked against the gingerbread people to benefit the fleshblood people. Ridiculous. We didn't want it to come to this, but in the end, we decided to eat them, houses and all. And before you think this is some kind of metaphor about financially or emotionally devouring all of their resources so they had drab and unexciting futures ahead of them, get that right out of your head. Not at all. In fact, we consumed their bodies and flesh, and their actual homes that they lived in. 
because they made us uncomfortable with their behaviors and lifestyle that just didn't really make sense to us. You know that old saying, people who live in gingerbread houses shouldn't throw sugarcane stones. Something like that. I was never very good in school. Mid-Valley. It's our 2022 radio holiday celebration. Mutations. It's really only creepy when you think about it for a moment. Valley Mutations with a selection from the Holiday Cookies EP that uh, just went out as a postcard uh, this year. Containing uh, six holiday recipes like the one you just heard. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, people who are on the mailing list receive those postcards in the mail and get musical treats once a month. So if that sounds like something that's fun to you, maybe you should get in touch. We'll, We'll sort that out. We're getting near the end here, and we got one more pretty good story actually to to close things out uh i think we're gonna go a little bit over uh this week i hope nobody minds usually they don't because uh uh, there's no one on after me uh but either way i want to get this story in because this is a, a crucial scary holiday story and i think uh you're gonna dig it um and uh, I'll just spoil it now. It's Algernon Blackwood. Uh, 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 if, if, if that's not enough to keep you listening, then I don't know what is. Uh, a, a creepy gentleman, uh, or, or at least a writer of creepy stories, I should say, because uh, uh, that's uh, that's what you get when you when you listen to a little Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't know if you uh, are into this kind of thing but uh, uh usually um every year around uh, um uh, uh christmas uh, there's a, a much more of a tradition in the uk to do scary stories ghost stories i mean i mean a christmas carol is the kind of last vestige of all of that that we still have in the modern era um but uh, there were a lot more, uh, and, and I think it's kind of faded off as, as time has gone on, unfortunately. Like, uh, our, our tendency now is for a, a brighter, lighter um, sort of uh, um, holiday celebrations. And so uh, 
we kind of tend to shy away from the darkness because uh, it's a little uh, uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. So, I mean, even a Christmas story has a happy ending at the end. Scrooge learns a lesson, unlike most rich, horrible businessmen. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a point being, uh, uh, some of these other spookier stories are uh, getting lost to time. And so uh, it's kind of fun to, uh, to dig them up and, and give them another chance. And, and, and I, I like, enjoy going through these old uh, radio zine uh, recordings. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I did that show for a few years, and it was a lot of fun. And it was like Friday mornings. <laughs> so people were tuning in on, 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 a, on a local uh, community station to hear these uh, stories and, and other st- seasonal stuff as the, as the year would go on. It wasn't always ghost stories. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, and... Um, yeah, maybe I'll dig out some more of my uh, greatest hits from that uh, show because uh, I, I had a few a few good moments here and there. Anyway, let's get into uh, the, the 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 final uh, countdown, as they say. It's Mid Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room with a little bit of Algernon Blackwood. Enjoy. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood When the words not guilty sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC, the leader of the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior. But Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to his chambers like lightning. It's what we expected, I think said the barrister, without emotion. And, personally, I am glad the case is over. There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defense of John Turk, the murderer, on a plea of insanity, had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad, too, said Johnson. He had sat in the court for ten days, watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas? You're going to skate and ski in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26, with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said, but that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because I've seen the last of that man's dreadful face. It's positively haunted me. Bat-white skin with black hair brushed low over the forehead is a thing I shall never forget and the description of the way the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that... Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy your holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back. And don't break your neck skiing. Johnson shook his hands and took his leave. 
At the door, he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course. I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within 30 hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of the criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the streets before the keenest east wind had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. This came by a man from Mr. Wilbraham, sir. She pointed to what was evidently the kit bag, and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Miss Monks, he said. I'll leave an address for letters. And I hope you'll have a Merry Christmas, sir, she said, in a raucous, wheezy voice that suggested spirits. And better weather than this. I hope so, too, replied her lodger, shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside. When he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is, he laughed to himself, and then set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountains so vividly before him, and made him forget the unpleasant scene of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes around the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap, and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and ear caps. And then, on the top of these, he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, his thick socks, puttees, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst thing of these kit bags, he mused vaguely, standing in the center of the sitting room, where he had to come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate, whilst he was skimming over snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, that reminded him. He must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen. And, as he did so, he heard someone coming softly up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. 
But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion that they were too heavy to be those of his bibulous landlord. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty, the canvas faded and worn, and that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that was chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Miss Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and, further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag looped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, for he could not exactly tell, looked like hair. It gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously, like the face of John Turk the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room, where the light was stronger. That horrid case got on my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs, and to realize that it was much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time, he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monk, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house, and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself, and the owner of this soft and stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind after all, although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last before turning in. It was difficult to say at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the unconsciousness. Then, a point is reached 
where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion, and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he was doing something that was strongly objected to by another person. Another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience. Almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all of that. Ah, he added, still speaking to himself, and that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly toward the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs, a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up toward the landing. And at that same moment, he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood shock still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs, he saw to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one there. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time a stealthy footstep, the tread of someone who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leaped the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that again lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs then, he muttered, his flesh crawling all over, and whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then, he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. Who's there? Is that you, Miss Monks? He called aloud, as he went and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, 
while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. Who's there? He called again, in a voice unnecessarily loud, and that only just held firm. What do you want here? The curtains swayed very slightly, and, as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. Yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window, streaming with rain, was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes, hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards, into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That's not where I left it. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. There's no one here at any rate. That's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterward that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear, and was perceived by a man that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation, or was merely delusions of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards, from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to the other things this story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon the mental plates exposed in the courtroom of the Old Bailey came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant haunting memories have a way of coming to life again just when the mind least desires them, in the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision, the white skin, the evil eyes, 
and the fringe of black hair lowered over his forehead. All the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind, unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall find my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired, no doubt, at this rate I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind to hide, and at the same moment a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost a hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice. But though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack, where it had fallen over, being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded bloodstain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch forward toward the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together, and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it a-swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was moments before he found the switch. And in that few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor, in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped his nails from his fingers. But even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keyed up by a vivid emotion, 
he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, and before he had time to act upon it, he had yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness, for there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead. The whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous, under the very shadow of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial, the ghostly dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself, produced as evidence, it all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words. It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. He remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized he was lying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. He recognized Mrs. Monk's face, loud and involable. What? You ain't been to bed, sir? Are you ill or anything happened? And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet, and... Who is it? He stammered. I'm all right, thanks. Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. Someone from Mr. Wilbraham's, and he says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad. And I told him... Show him up, please, at once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling, and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong kit bag had been sent over the night before. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid, the man continued, without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead both in. Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one, as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. 
At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me? Just empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you, sir? What is it? asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought maybe you'd like to know what's happened. Yes? John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately on getting his release, and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham, saying as he'd be much obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time... <clears throat> what time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says. Yule Tidings of the Carol Variety As the spirit of the season fills us with the need to present 2021's answer to Jingle Bell Rock. Enjoy this classic tale of processing the end of the year while seasonal affective disorder troubles us all so much that we forget the words to the song.
the door, Cratchit. Shut out that infernal noise. Yes, Mr. Scrooge. Found that impudence. Uh, okay. Cratchit. Yes, Mr. Scrooge. You ought to stop at Fothergill on your way home tonight. Collect that 17 shillings and sixpence he owed me since Michaelmas. And tell him I shall have the constable over here if he doesn't pay it once. Well, sir, Mr. Fothergill's wife is... What do I care about his wife? Well, I want my 17 and six. I, I just thought it being Christmas... Christmas, Christmas. Merry Christmas. I... Merry Christmas, Bob. Oh, Mr. Fred. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Uncle. Merry Christmas, Uncle. Bye. As the calendar brings this year to an end and the kids are all chasing the newest trends, it can seem like the endless repeating routine with the same stupid traditions, or so it seems. But when things are the darkest, it's handy to know that in spite of the emphasis on holiday snow, or toys and gifts that none of us need, or religious gatherings that don't mean a thing, there's something else that we all long to see, a big celebration with our chosen family. it through another year, and this time, there wasn't a single argument that broke out into a screaming match that we all regret afterwards. It's your restraint this time of year that I find the most endearing. Thanks for telling all those scary stories. A couple of the songs were okay, even. Come on, I know you love that Riverbottom Nightmare Band song. It's really the best part of that movie, if you ask me. I have to admit, that nog you made has done a number on me. Save some of that for Christmas Day, for sure. That'll cure what ails you, no matter what Santa puts in your stocking. I'm glad I could offer a little something to make this lounge a little more merry. Any plans for your time off this coming week? I was thinking I might dip into my old comics, put on some tunes, read through some old Marvel Conan stories. I think I have the entire run of that series they did of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, too. Might be fun to kick it with some comics this week. What do you think? I think I'm going to sleep. Maybe I'll try to do a load of laundry, but that seems unlikely. I'll probably just wear what I'm wearing now to work next week. You and most Americans, I'm sure. I was positive you'd be watching the Silent Night Deadly Night Marathon that's inevitably airing on some channel I've never heard of. Seen in. Besides, a little Algernon Blackwood goes a long way. I might just have to chill out on some reality dating show for a while before I dip back into the horror again. Maylining that OG stuff is the real deal, yo. Fair enough. I guess this is the place where we close up shop then? If you say so. Happy, Happy holidays, holidays from, from Mid Valley Mutations, Mutations and Sheena's, Sheena's Jungle, Jungle Room. Did we get it? Yeah. Great, I'm going to bed later. They just get so excited about the holiday season. Where's them right out? And I'm sure many of you are worn out at this point as well, if you're still listening, that is. We went way, 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 way over 
this week, but that happens occasionally. Like, during the holidays, maybe? <laughs> I had fun anyway. Some of these stories are nice and creepy. Uh, Mid-Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Thank you so much for uh, letting me do my thing. I got a couple more closing bits here, and then I'll sign off. What can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. the night before Sheena's and all through the jungle room. All the DJs were stirring, making their cocktails go kaboom. The LP bags were hung by the chimney with care 
in the hopes that Mr. Fab soon would be there. The crew were all lit, decked out in their best threads, with a band keeping beat on those boss new drumheads. Shangri-La's got a kooky sweater and Barno's sporting a hat, while Jan Turkenberg has the dance moves down pat. When out on the turntables, Chris O. spun a platter. We all sprung to our feet and danced like mad hatters. Then in through the door with a significant flash, flew in Don Bowles with a huge LP stash. Rich in Washington added another hour to his show with a holiday double feature programmed by Don O. When, what to our Hepcat eyeballs should appear? But an overdressed Mr. Fab, with all the other DJs, never fear. On the dance floor he was so lively and quick, as we all grooved and frugged to surf songs so slick. It seemed like the tunes all had obscure fame, yet every single one of us knew them all by name. Everybody brought food, there were plenty of fixins, and when it came to drinks, we were all nearly six in, to the top of the porch, and all through the halls. Our DJs were always heard by one and all. Alex Kish and Julie, with Mike Rogers himself. I see Space Brother flipping through records on that shelf. Jamie Jazz and Catherine Sage, both shaking their heads at the terrible pun that I, for some reason, just said. Hysterica just got here, but they seem to fit right in. And we're laughing at the choices by DJ Kratoven. Georgie Girl is the peak of fashion and style. And Derek showed up with another record pile. John Nelson and Mark Time are both learning to twerk, while Miss May and Flannery chat in the kitchen and lurk. Sarcophagi and Daryl both like to pose, while Speedo and John P. trade DJ tips like old pros. DJ Babs and M.H. Lee both began to whistle, and you know we all got the It's All Night epistle. We heard Mr. Fab exclaim, quite loud and quite bright, This year we dance to Sheena's all day and all night. From everyone here in the Mid Valley, those stationed in the Lava Lamp Lounge itself, the production crew here at Dime Store Radio Theatre and Mid Valley Mutations, and all the volunteers at Sheena's Jungle Room, we wish you a sappy Hollandaise and plenty of new music throughout the coming year. Now, time to get my freak on. Latest skaters. 